0: Welcome to Teleforum, a podcast of the Federalist Society's practice groups. I'm Dean Reuter, Vice President, General Counsel, and Director of Practice Groups at the Federalist Society. For exclusive access to live recordings of practice group Teleforum calls, become a Federalist Society member
1: today
2: at fedsoc.org. Hello and welcome to this Federalist Society virtual event. My name is Jack Derwin. I'm Associate Director of Practice Groups here at the Federalist Society. Today, we're excited to host a panel discussion sponsored by our Federalism and Separation of Powers Practice Group, titled What are the Limits of Emergency Executive Powers? Joining us today is a stellar panel of legal experts who bring a range of views to the topic. In the interest of time, we'll keep intros brief, but you can view their full bios at fedsoc.org. Our moderator today, Ilya Shapiro, is a Senior Fellow and Director of Constitutional Studies at the Manhattan Institute. Previously, he was Executive Director and Senior Lecturer at the Georgetown Center for the Constitution, before that, a vice president of the Cato Institute and director of Cato's Robert A. Levy Center for Constitutional Studies. After discussion between our panelists, we'll go to audience Q and A if time allows. You can enter any questions for our speakers into the Q and A box at the bottom right of your Zoom window. Finally, I note that as always, all expressions of opinion are those of the speakers joining us today. With that, I will pass it over to you, Ilya. Thanks, Jack.
3: Um, Thanks, everyone, for joining us. This is an important and continues, unfortunately, to be a a timely topic because the use of presidential emergency powers has been controversial under administrations of of both parties. We have President Trump's uh, uh, use of funds uh, to build his border wall, the CDC eviction moratorium, uh, the OSHA vaccine mandate, um, Title 42 border expulsions. Uh, most recently, President Biden's student loan forgiveness plan, uh, our uh, august panel of, of experts will explore uh, the scope and the advantages and disadvantages of these e- emergency executive powers. Uh, and uh, I'll introduce very briefly our speakers who will go in the following order. First, we will have Elizabeth Goitian, Senior Director in the Lib- Liberty and National Security Program at the Brennan Center for Justice at New York University Law School. She'll be followed by Ilya Soman, professor of law at Antonin Scalia Law School at George Mason University, and then Daniel Du, who's the legal policy director at the Pacific Legal Foundation. Uh, With that introduction, Liza, the floor is yours.
4: Thanks, Ilya, and thanks very much to the Federalist Society for inviting me to be part of this webinar. Um, I'm going to start with a very basic question, which is what are emergency powers and why do we have them? Emergency powers have existed in countries around the world for hundreds of years. The argument for them is pretty simple because an emergency is by definition sudden and unforeseen. The powers conferred on the government by ordinary laws um, might not be sufficient to respond to it amending the law to provide for greater powers might take too long uh, and it might do damage uh, in some cases to principles that are considered sacrosanct in ordinary times. So emergency powers authorize a limited departure from the legal norm. Uh, Their purpose is to give the president a temporary boost in power until the emergency passes or until there's time to change the law through the normal legislative process. Emergency powers are not intended to address long standing problems, no matter how serious, nor are they meant to authorize permanent or long term policy solutions that Congress itself could provide but has chosen not to. Using emergency powers to get around Congress undermines the separation of powers that is the backbone of our constitution. And the same is true for using emergency powers to get around the courts when they have uh, blocked a policy initiative. Unfortunately, we have seen several instances of this in the past few years, beginning with Trump's declaration of a national emergency to secure funding for the border wall. The border wall wasn't a temporary measure to address a sudden unforeseen crisis. It was meant as a permanent policy solution to unlawful boarding crossings, unlawful border crossings, uh, which have been going on for decades or more, uh, and, and which didn't suddenly get worse in February, 2019. It also came after two years of Trump trying to get Congress to appropriate funds and Congress explicitly refusing to do so. No previous president had so blatantly used emergency powers to evade the will of Congress. Next came the policy of trying to prevent immigrants from crossing the Southern border and seeking asylum in the United States. Trump first attempted to implement that policy through regulations in 2018, and the courts struck them down. Trump's next attempt was the so-called migrant protection protocols in 2019, and the courts stayed those protocols. Uh, Then the COVID hit, and Trump was able to invoke Section 362 of the Public Health Service Act, often referred to simply as Title 42, which allows the CDC to prohibit entry into the United States uh, in order to prevent the spread of communicable diseases into the country. Public health experts widely agreed that Trump's use of of Title 42 wasn't necessary as a COVID mitigation measure. Uh, COVID was just a pretext. It was a way for Trump to implement a policy that the courts had rejected. Biden kept the measure in place. But again, it wasn't really to prevent the spread of COVID. It was to buy time to figure out the logistical and humanitarian mess caused by insufficient intake resources at the border. The last use uh, or misuse of emergency powers that I'll flag is Biden's use of emergency powers under the COVID emergency declaration to forgive student loan debt. In March 2020, COVID was a sudden unforeseen crisis. Its immediate economic impact might well have meant that some people needed temporary relief from student loan payments. Trump and Biden both used emergency powers for that purpose. What Biden did this August was different. He used the COVID emergency to implement permanent debt forgiveness, not just for people experiencing economic hardship as a result of COVID and not just for the duration of COVID. And he did so two years into the pandemic, at which point members of Congress had actually considered legislation to forgive student loans and had not passed it. So that starts to look less like a temporary exercise of power to address a sudden, fast-moving crisis, and more like a workaround to implement a long-term policy that lacks the necessary support in Congress. This is a disturbing trend, and I suspect it's only going to intensify as long as Congress remains so evenly divided, uh, and that's why I think emergency powers reform is so important.
3: Thanks very much, Liza. Um, uh, Ilya, the floor is yours. And I'll just mention to our audience that whatever questions you have as they arise, you can type into the
1: Q&A box. I'll be taking them uh, from there uh, later on. Thank you, Ilya, and thanks to the Federal Society for sponsoring this event. Liza has given us a great overview of what emergency powers are and some of the problems with them. Uh, I'll start by talking a little bit more systematically about the history of abuse of emergency powers and why such abuses happen. I'll talk a little bit more than Liza did about some of the specific abuses we've seen under both President Trump and President Biden. And finally, I'll mention a few reforms that I think could Maybe we be enacted to curb some of these problems. So there is a long history of abuse of emergency powers in the United States and other countries. Uh, I can't give all the examples, but there are some really big ones that deserve to be mentioned. During the Civil War, during World War I and other conflicts, there were severe abuses of civil liberties and freedom of speech. During World War II, uh, President Franklin D. Roosevelt infamously detained over 150,000 Japanese Americans in detention camps for several years, uh, even though there was little, if any, evidence that these people posed any sort of a threat. Uh, And there have also been significant abuses in domestic emergencies like the Great Depression. Uh, And I think these sorts of abuses, it isn't just a matter of a particular president or some other politician made a mistake or screwed up, there are systematic reasons why they happen. One is that in a crisis atmosphere, uh, people's thinking often is less clear uh, and less systematic and reasonable than it might be otherwise. And also uh, voter ignorance, which is a problem even during normal times. Most voters don't know much about the details of policy. This is even worse in a crisis when voters may be in a panic, they may be scared, uh, and they may clamor for anything that looks like strong decisive action, even if it doesn't actually do much to address the crisis, or even if the costs of the action are greater than any possible benefits. And obviously, politicians and interest groups know about these problems, and therefore, they see emergencies as opportunities for various kinds of power grabs, as wide as suggested opportunities to implement agendas that in normal times they can't get through, whether it be Trump's border wall, or Biden's loan forgiveness, or any number of other examples examples that uh, we can think of through American history Uh, as Rahm Emanuel, an advisor to President Obama famously put it, never let a crisis go to waste. This is the sort of thing that he was talking about. And uh, obviously, he has equivalents on the right, like Stephen Miller, who certainly took advantage of the COVID crisis to implement his anti-immigration agenda, uh, which could not have been pushed as far as it was uh, absent uh, that emergency. Uh, Now, there is nonetheless a standard argument for why You know we need to defer to the executive in these times, in particular, the judiciary should, and that is the idea that you know they're the ex they're they're the experts. They know more about these issues than the courts do or than the rest of us do. So we should defer to them during the COVID crisis. This was often called following the science, like let the scientists make decisions. And I think there's something to the idea that we should rely on expertise, but this deference to expertise argument has significant limitations. I'll just mention a couple of them. One is that if there really is science and expertise backing the policy, then the government should be able to prove that, even without special deferential treatment by the courts. Uh, secondly, often, as in the case of the Title 42 expulsions and a number of other examples, I think also uh, the Biden loan forgiveness, an example of this, the claimed expertise is really a smokescreen for other kinds of agendas, uh, an anti immigrant agenda in one case, the long standing uh, uh, belief among many on the left that we need massive loan forgiveness on the other. Uh, and I think a similar story can be told uh, about the, uh, the detention of Japanese Americans and many other historical episodes. So at the very least, before we should have special deference to expertise, we want to see some proof that the specialized expertise really is the reason for the measure, as opposed to just a smokescreen put up uh, for it. In the case of the eviction moratorium, uh, the Title 42 expulsions, uh, and I think probably also the loan forgiveness situation, uh, the claimed expertise is pretty obviously a pretext and the actual experts, many of them don't even necessarily believe that public health really requires these uh, measures. Uh, And there is a historical and and current irony in all of this in that when it comes to emergency measures related to national security and immigration and some other issues, people on the left are very happy to make many of the same kinds of points that I just made, uh, but they tend to forget them when it comes to public health measures or things that can be portrayed as public health measures. And of course, people on the right seem to have the exact opposite bias. But if we are able to put down some of our partisan blinkers or take them off for a moment, we see that uh, the patterns in these cases are quite similar. Uh, So Eliza has already mentioned a number of the abuse of emergency powers that have happened in recent years. I will just mention also the eviction moratorium begun under President Trump and then extended several times by Biden. It's pretty obvious that that Trump did this because he thought it would help him politically in the run-up to the 2020 election. And Biden continued it because many people on the left wanted this policy and strongly supported it, even though there was never much evidence that uh, this was actually doing anything for public health. Eventually, of course, the Supreme Court uh, struck it down. Uh, And I think that's yet another recent example of this. Uh, And there are more that we could cite if there was more time. But I will end just by noting a couple of reforms that I think should be seriously considered. One is we should continue and extend strong and relatively non-deferential judicial review in these areas. Uh, We've had it in some areas, but not uh, as broadly as, as, as should be the case. Second, uh, there should be strict time limits for these use of emergency powers. It's understandable as Liza said that at the beginning of a crisis, when you have swift action and uh, or you need it, uh, uh, maybe you have to do something out of the ordinary, but there should be an expiration, uh, say a few weeks or at most a few months. And at that point, at the very least, it should only continue if Congress votes to reauthorize it, Unlike the current situation in the National Emergencies Act, where once the president declares an emergency, Congress can only get rid of it through an affirmative vote, which is then, of course, subject to the president's veto. Uh, And finally, I think people should be more aware than many of them seem to be that the emergency powers claimed by a president of your own party can later be used by a president of the other party. And you should ask yourself, even if you say trust Joe Biden to wield these powers, would you trust Donald Trump or the next Republican president? And if you're a Republican president, or I'm sorry, if you're a Republican, ask a reverse question. Even if you trust a Republican, would you trust a Democrat? If the answer is no, and I think for most people it's going to be no, then maybe you shouldn't support the exercise of these kinds of powers in the first place. Thank you.
3: A useful thought experiment more broadly than emergency powers, I think. Um, I thank you, Ilya. Uh, Daniel, go ahead. Yeah, thank you for, for having me. Um,
0: so, Pacific Legal Foundation has always been interested in the separation of powers. We have a center for the separation of powers, and I think that that the use and abuse of these emergency powers has really highlighted a loophole that that allows uh, executives, whether at the state or federal level, to uh, to circumvent, as as Liza described, circumvent the usual uh, constitutional form of government that we have. So Pacific Legal Foundation, we've worked on this um, on the litigation side as well as on on the policy side. From a litigation standpoint, one of the things that we found is that a lot of the emergency orders, not only did they circumvent the, the usual um, lawmaking process, but a lot of them were arbitrary. So, for example, we represented a a private club in North Carolina, Club Five Nineteen. North Carolina, um, North Carolina had a law that allowed um, that closed down private clubs and bars, but but others were allowed to remain open. Um, there were restrictions on you know how much food a a restaurant had to serve or a bar had to serve was it was it substantive, was it was it popcorn or was it hot dogs and and hamburgers um and and that was really the the determination of whether they were allowed to be open or or whether they they had to close and i think that that's part of the part of the big problem that we see with with these emergency powers is how arbitrary they they are. I think that it's it's strange to think back to uh April, May, uh June of 2020 when every day we would turn on our our televisions and tune into our governor's press conference and we would find out from the governor what the government was going to allow us to do that day. Um it was it was always changing and you know, our our businesses tried to be entrepreneurial. They wanted to follow directions, but but those things were were constantly changing, and so it was really um, a fundamental fairness uh, issue as well. So we we filed a number of lawsuits on these issues. I think I'll I'll go to our policy solutions uh, as well, and I agree with a lot of what what Ilya uh, spoke about. So we put forward um, model policy and we worked with a number of, of, uh, of state legislatures on implementing this, making sure that each branch of government was fulfilling or was able to fulfill its, its proper and, and constitutional form. And so the first thing was ensuring that that legislatures were brought back into the process. So putting a, a time limit on emergency orders. We tried to be careful to, to talk about the orders rather than the declarations. We understand that declarations uh, turn on spigots of federal money that, that the state still wants to give up, but making sure that within a reasonable amount of time that the legislatures um, are brought into this discussion. They are the policy-making body of, of the state and Congress at, at the federal level, obviously. And then I, I see a question in the chat talking about, we saw a number of states that already did have these time limits on, on emergency orders. Um, and what we would see is, is that the governor would just reissue the same same order at the end of 30 days, 45 days, whatever the, the time limit was. And so what we recommended and were able to um, to pass in a, in a number of states was, uh, something similar to what's in the Congressional Review Act, where basically it would prohibit the governor from issuing or reissuing uh, the same or a substantially similar order to one that either expired or was explicitly rejected by the legislature for the same emergency. We also want to make sure that our courts are involved so that they have expedited review. And when there are orders that that uh, impede on constitutional rights, that those those orders are, are subjected to heightened scrutiny so that so the courts, instead of punting and saying, this is an emergency, we're not going to touch this. Instead, they they look closer at this because this is not something that went through the constitutional uh, lawmaking process. And I'll just give one quick anecdote from, from Kentucky where the legislature passed one of these reforms ensuring that uh, the legislature wasn't removed from the process. And I think it's it's uh, it's a a warning to to others. So they the legislature passed this. Uh, the governor vetoed that uh, that piece of legislation. They overrode the governor's veto. But then the governor actually sued the legislature to enjoin them from the law going into effect. I don't know how that works. I don't understand Kentucky law. Uh, how you can can enjoin a legislature from legislature It's a, it's a horse it, of a different color. It it, it it is, and it's it's bizarre. But um, the the um, the uh, governor was able to find a a friendly uh, uh, court, uh, local court, and enjoin the the law from going into effect. Uh, Pacific Legal Foundation, we were able to represent a client in another district. We met up, uh, those two cases met up at the Supreme Court relatively quickly, and uh, and the court unanimously held that it was entirely within the legislature's purview to uh, limit emergency powers.
3: Great, thanks for that. Um, before I open up broader discussion, Liza, do you want to reply to anything that Ilya uh, or Daniel have said?
4: Yeah, I mean, this it's so interesting to listen. Um, I would agree that I think that courts have been overly deferential uh, in terms of the use of, of emergency powers. I will say that some of the laws in question uh, don't really even give the courts the opportunity to review emergency powers at all. And, and the one that comes to mind, just because I've been working on it quite a bit, is the Insurrection Act, where the law explicitly states that if the president considers that certain criteria are met, he can deploy uh, federal troops. And, you know, the way that's worded, the courts don't get to even uh, assess whether those criteria have been met. And arguably some of the Public Health Service Act uh, says the same as well. Now, But I, I want to be clear that I actually agree that the executive branch has... Uh, depths of expertise uh, in certain areas, in many areas that are not shared by the courts are not necessarily shared by the legislatures. And I do think in areas of national security, I do think in public health crises, some deference is appropriate, just like the deference that a court would give to any expert witness in a trial Deference should not mean complete acquiescence. It should not mean abdication of judicial review. I'm in favor, for example, with the Insurrection Act of something like a substantial evidence standard of review, where the question is simply, is there enough evidence for a reasonable person to have concluded that these criteria were met, even if another reasonable person might disagree? So the court is not substituting its judgment, for that of the executive branch. It's simply asking whether that judgment reaches a threshold level of reasonableness. And I think there are many uh, cases, Borderwall and, and others where I think, uh, you know a court should say, actually, no, actually, no. There are criteria in the statute here. It's not true for the National Emergencies Act. There's no criteria there, but the military construction spending provision that was invoked. It was, those criteria weren't met. And I think a court should feel comfortable uh, saying this goes beyond a certain threshold level of reasonableness.
3: Uh, Ilya, what do you think about that standard? Or is it just a matter of setting uh, pleading and evidentiary burdens at a certain way to have a uh, 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 real uh, judicial review or are there um, broader issues uh, that, that need to be reformed? Mike Lee, for example, has a you know, proposal to uh, reform the National Emergencies Act.
1: Yeah, so I think there's actually a couple of questions there. First, the we proposal, which I largely agree with, would simply say the emergency expires after I can't remember exactly how soon, but perhaps after a few months. And I think that makes sense and doesn't in any way impede the use of expertise where expertise is in fact being used. You can quibble about exactly how soon the emergency should expire, but you know that's a reform. You know that I do favor, and I think it makes sense uh, to pursue something like that. On the broader issue, I agree in principle with most of what Wise has said, but the devil is often in the details and that uh, as those in the audience and on the panel who are lawyers know, reasonableness can mean that you really have to have some significant substantial reason or it could mean almost anything goes so long as it's not completely stupid and ridiculous. And that first approach to reasonableness might be, dare I say, reasonable, whereas the second one, I think in this context, at least is much less so. I would add also that I think the more the restructuring on liberty that is being imposed, the greater the diversion of public funds, the larger the scale of whatever is being done, I think the less deference should be due. And especially the less should be due as you move past the immediate stages of a crisis, so I think in those situations, the burden of proof uh, should go higher on the government, and obviously also it should go higher when there are uh, constitutional rights at stake. Uh, finally, as I mentioned earlier, before you start deferring to expertise, the government should at least have to prove that expertise is the true reason why they adopted the policy as opposed to a bunch of recent examples and some historical ones where it's pretty obvious that the claim to expertise was smokes screen, we've talked about some of these, Title 42, the eviction moratorium, the loan forgiveness. Uh, The Biden administration here is barely even claiming in the the current litigation that they have special expertise, which shows that many millions of people who seemingly are doing just fine have, in fact, suffered a special burden because of the COVID crisis, making it harder for them to repay their loans. Uh, So uh, I don't think deference is due there, or in a number of other cases, it's pretty obvious that expertise is not the real reason why what's been done is being done
3: Daniel as a experienced litigator in, in these areas what do you think about these whole evidentiary burdens you know the rational basis and standards of scrutiny uh, deference uh, doctrines and, and also uh, you, you alluded to some of this in, in your remarks the seeming difference at least with respect to federal powers and federal courts, um, of the treatment of rights-based claims versus government structures claims, where the former, certainly in the religious realm and, and others, seem to have been more successful than those challenging um, um, the scope of government power.
0: Yeah, I think what what we saw in practice was that a lot of our our cases judges didn't look friendly on our our uh, our claims at the beginning because they they wanted to to give deference to the government. So I do think that there should be a, a heightened um, level of scrutiny given when when we're acting outside the normal framework of of lawmaking so I think that that I actually think that that uh, you know an intermediate or or even strict scrutiny um, standard when it infringes on a constitutional right um, is is proper when it's something um, along the lines of what uh, Liza was talking about. I do think that that it's a it's a little bit different because those those powers are uh, vested to are, are given to the president through statute. But I, I also agree with Ilya who's uh, you know, it depends if are we doing rational basis review where there could be anything that, that justifies it or is it, you know, rational basis with teeth?
3: All right. I want to do uh, one more beat among the three of you before we take some of the audience questions. And one thing that's sort of lying in the background of this whole discussion is how different is this discussion from an overall one about the complaint about the imperial presidency or governance through the pen and phone and tweet uh, in a time of congressional gridlock when, you know, if Congress won't act, I will. uh, Those sorts of uh, complaints about executive power uh, overreach uh, is the emergency power aspect uh, a subset, a special version, something different? What do y'all think about that?
4: I think that's a great question because I've asked myself that question. Um, do I feel the same when the president uses an executive power that is not an emergency power in a situation uh, where that executive power appears to be available to him, but he knows that it's something that Congress would not support, and in in theory, that raises some of the same separation of powers concerns as as the use of emergency powers. <clears throat> I will say that I think the use of emergency powers is, is a is a somewhat different problem. I, I I don't know if it's different in kind or just in degree, but I think it, it, I'm I am more concerned about it because when uh, setting forth uh, emergency powers, Congress delegates a degree of flexibility in general that it would not otherwise delegate, and so these are. And, and the Congress is trusting that the president will not use them uh, in ordinary circumstances and that there has to be that they should be used in a very short term way, that they should be used uh, only in direct response to an immediate crisis that Congress could not have dealt with. Most of the powers that Congress delegates to the executive branch do not fall in that category. And I think that Congress has delegated too much power to the executive branch across a range of different issues, completely outside the emergency context. I think Congress, we have, we have come to a point where a lot of the authority to make law and policy in this country resides with the president because Congress has given it to the president. And, um, I think that's, problematic. Uh, But I also think that uh, and that Congress should not do that and should sort of uh, try to reverse that trend. But in the meantime, I think those are powers that Congress has given to the president and the president uh, can freely exercise them. I think it's a very different situation where the president is either exploiting an actual emergency or creating a fake emergency in order to use emergency powers for reasons they were never intended. Um, So, I, there's there's a there's a thread running through uh, all of it uh but emergency power uh, has a special um uh, salience for me
3: anyone else have thoughts on that uh
1: yes if if if, if i may i think this is certainly in some ways a subset of the excessive growth of executive power, and there's excessive growth even in quote non emergency situations. Nonetheless, for reasons that eliza mentioned, also some of those that I mentioned in my initial presentation, the emergency power problem is a particularly severe aspect of it because it happens in an atmosphere of panic. It happens in a situation where people can exploit a crisis to pursue other agendas and so forth. I would push back slightly on the point that uh, you, Ilya Shapiro, made that maybe you know, the issue is the Congress isn't doing enough. I think uh, it's a common perception that you know we have a do-nothing Congress that doesn't do anything. But even just in the last year and a half under uh, President Biden, they passed several major laws. They passed uh, the massive infrastructure bill. They passed the massive stimulus bill. They passed some other things as well. There was important legislation passed under Trump, like the Tax Act and so on. So the issue is not that Congress isn't passing a lot of laws. Are spending trillions upon trillions of dollars that may well bankrupt us eventually it's rather that in part precisely because Congress has passed so many laws that a lot of there's a lot of ambiguities a lot of delegation of power uh and therefore uh, a lot of opportunities for skullduggery and other problematic behavior by uh the president so it's not the Congress uh has you know, is, is sitting around doing nothing. Is that in some ways it too, like the president, is perhaps doing too much uh, in too many areas. Uh, and the more you do, the less it is possible for Congress to itself ahead of time figure out all the trade-offs and application to particular cases and the like.
0: Yeah, I'll just add. I think that that it's the same. It's the same separation of powers problem, just just heightened. Uh, if you look at the student loan forgiveness issue, there's no rule. There's no emergency rulemaking. It's it's basically governing by website and press release. And so that's why you see all of these lawsuits that are shifting around because the, the administration is just kind of making it up on the fly as they go because they're using these emergency powers and feel like they don't have to really do much officially. So I, I think it's the same problem, just heightened.
3: Great, um, and Daniel, I'll, I'll come back to you. I'm gonna take some audience questions now. And, and as you noted, uh, uh, you know the issue of emergency power is not limited to the federal government. Uh, notably during COVID, but even in, in uh, more normal times, uh, states, uh, state governors exercise emergency powers of various kinds, and there are constitutional uh, limits about the uh, temporal limits and and otherwise. Uh, Matthew Arnold raised this. Um, uh, Steve Dewey, uh, uh, talks about, um, emergency decree powers and maybe legislatures need to consider, uh, putting, uh, stronger actions, uh, you know, has COVID provided a laboratories of democracy, uh, sort of experience. So then now that we, you know, know what works and what doesn't, what would be a best practice to, um, uh, get the separation of powers balance, uh, uh, uh right. What, what are your thoughts on that?
0: Yeah, I think I think it has. I think we've seen um, I think we've seen what happens when when these emergency powers are just able to last. But I'll say it, you know, it doesn't depend on whether it's a red state or a blue state. We've we've tried to work with uh, governors of, of both parties and, you know, their egos can be a little fragile. If you want to change those, they they're offended that, you uh, that uh, you think that they didn't exercise their their powers in the right way and we have to remind them that no this is this has to do with what's coming next it's it's not necessarily a referendum on what you did so i think that that uh making sure that those, there are those time limits and that the ledges that the governor can't just repeatedly issue the same emergency orders over and over again is is
3: really vital elizabeth Ilya, anything on
1: state I think we've seen wide variations between states, and you know that could be its all a whole panel of its own. Potentially, I will say that unlike at the, at the federal level, in some states there have been efforts at structural reform to curb some of these powers. I think we already mentioned Kentucky, uh, the state of Pennsylvania passed reform. And interesting, we also, the overwhelmingly blue state of New York, the Democratic-controlled state legislature saw that Andrew Cuomo had abused his powers in various ways, even though he too was a Democrat, and they passed reforms. So at the state level, while there have been many problems, there have also, at least in some states, been more serious efforts to do structural reform. By contrast, while there has been talk in Congress about structural reform. It seems like action uh, has been in short supply, and uh, it seems like in Congress, people's willingness to act, in most cases with a few principled exceptions, seems to vary based on whether their guy is in the White House or not. When their guy is in the White House, they tend to cheer him on rather than reel him in. And On the other hand, when it's the other guy, then you know they behave differently.
4: Yeah. And I would just add that if federal emergency powers scare you, then you should never sleep again. If you're just thinking about state emergency powers, the scope and the breadth of the emergency powers available to state governors go far beyond anything the president has. The federal government is a government of enumerated powers. uh, And the the sort of residual police power is left to the states. And that is pretty much uh, anything that has to do with public health and safety is within the discretion of governors, limited only by uh, whatever federal law might limit them, but also their own state constitutions and state law. And most state constitutions are extremely generous in terms of the emergency powers that they grant to their governors. And with, at the Brennan Center, we partnered with the Hoover Institute, institution? I, can, I, I always forget that. But anyway, <clears throat> at Stanford, to put together a database of state emergency powers. Um, and it's it, it would blow the mind. Um, now, For the very same reason why this is a little scary, um, it is also the case, which is that the the states actually have this police, sort of vast police power. Um, It also means that the states are primarily responsible for public health and safety, and we want to have public health and safety. We want that. So I think it's very important to think about ways in which reforms to state emergency powers might look different than reforms to federal emergency powers. and and it's also, you know I, I I will say that I felt like for for in, in significant respect, what governors were doing were trying to stand in for and to compensate for the absence of any kind of public health system in this country. <laughs> and I am I do not believe that emergency power should be used to cobble together a public health system, but, uh, it does worry me. Once emergency powers are reformed in the way that I hope they are reformed, what will be left in place to deal with a real, with a pandemic, with the next pandemic, which might be far more serious than COVID, uh, if we don't have permanent authorities, non-emergency authorities in place that uh, provide a rational and effective response for public health crises.
3: Well, some of that uh, gets into much broader issues of public confidence in the in the CDC and um, you know a, a czar like Fauci and and what that means for the the next uh, crisis. But uh, getting uh, back to to national emergency to federal uh, executive emergency powers, part of what we all learned is that. There's not really a, uh, a set definition of emergency, but rather uh, thousands of statutes that uh, are unlocked when the president just declares <clears throat> an emergency. And so that's why uh, even for something like the... Um, like the, the debt forgiveness, the, the student loan forgiveness, it's not Biden kind of just, just waving his hands and saying, I for, I forgive you, but uh, with the uh, COVID emergency still technically ongoing, even though the president declared colloquially uh, during an interview that, that it was over, uh, um, it was the Heroes Act passed after nine eleven that uh, you know got a, a legalistic answer from the uh, the Office of Legal Counsel at DOJ that, uh, that 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 is being used in court to to defend uh, that authority. So um uh, we talk about reforming the powers restricting them limiting them okay sunsetting is is one thing so that the 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 time limit but what about um uh, you know defining what an actual emergency is or even uh, limiting the the type of unlocking of these other you know uh, uh, countless uh, statutes
4: uh i would be in favor of of limiting the definition or, or creating a definition for what qualifies as a national emergency i think you need to be careful not to micromanage it i think you need to leave a lot of room for flexibility and judgment but at a at a minimum i think it w- it would make sense to say that it has to be um a sudden unforeseen set of circumstances that create uh, a significant um you know uh that cause an immediate threat to public health and safety uh or something like that i mean i, I was uh, if it would be a sort of longer, more elaborate, and more legalist response if I were to actually sit down and write the definition. But I think incorporating these basic principles of what an emergency is, if you look in the dictionary, right? Emergency has a definition in the dictionary. It can't mean just anything. And every definition, every dictionary will say it has to be sudden, unexpected, unforeseen, and it has to require an immediate response. And there are ways to put that into legal criteria. And I think think that would be a good idea. Um, there are always there's always going to be subjectivity. there's always going to be room for mischief. That's why we want to have uh, both uh, a, a political check in the form of congressional action and a legal check in the form of judicial review.
1: at the time when Trump declared the uh, the border uh, emergency to try to justify building the border wall. I made the argument that even the use of the word emergency in the current National Emergencies Act, although obviously that word isn't defined, uh, it should still be interpreted as meaning more or less but wise. It just said a sudden unexpected crisis as opposed to anything the president wants it to be because the Supreme Court has said that uh, we, in most cases, courts should interpret words in accordance with their ordinary usage and the ordinary usage of emergency is not anything the president says is an emergency or anything that might, rec- might usefully uh, you know, provide a justification for a policy that the president wants to do or something like that. So by those criteria, I argued at the time, though almost nobody else agreed with me, uh, that uh, the border wall situation was not an emergency. I think the COVID crisis was a genuine emergency, was a genuine unexpected large-scale crisis. I have to concede that. Um, but uh, I think there also then room for reform of, about exactly what powers that triggers and Wise has written previously about the enormous list of things that has triggered, some of which we should reconsider and some of which should be taken off entirely. One of my favorite examples and in theory, it creates the uh, opportunity for the president to do uh, to test chemical weapons on unwilling human subjects. And I think we can do without that power. Uh, and there are some other powers on the list we can do without entirely, and others that at the very least should be uh, you know should be more limited.
3: Um, A question from Garrett Snedeker. Uh, How strongly would you consider President Biden's statements on the eviction moratorium in August, 2021? Uh, So I take it this is uh, after the Supreme Court allowed The moratorium to stay in place and expire naturally. And when he was uh, renewing it. uh, So his statements then to demonstrate departmentalism, um, that is the president uh, the executive branch deciding for itself what the Constitution means uh, or instead uh, more of the normal rough and tumble politics.
1: I, I wrote about this extensively, so I wonder if I can answer if people disagree with me. They're certainly welcome to comment. Um, I just want to very briefly review what happened, which is that uh, Trump instituted the moratorium in September of 2020. It was renewed several times by Biden. There was litigation over it. Many lower courts ruled against the moratorium, but the D.C. Circuit upheld it. The case, the issue, reached the Supreme Court on the uh, uh, on the so-called shadow docket in June, and the Supreme Court refused to enjoin the moratorium. but they did say in a concurring opinion by Justice Kavanaugh, they said basically like, if you extend this again past the July 31st deadline, then where you know, essentially there was a free strong we are gonna strike it down. It looked like at first that Biden was gonna let it expire on July 31st and leave it at that. Uh, but then there was efforts in Congress to enact it uh, and Nancy Pelosi, the Speaker of the House, told him he didn't have the votes. And she also said, like, you have to find a way to extend this, You know, find better lawyers, she famously chose. So he consulted some additional lawyers and then he did put in a new, slightly modified version of moratorium. When asked about this, he conceded uh, that most constitutional experts expect it would be struck by him by the courts, but he was gonna do it anyway. So you could say this is departmentalism in the sense of uh, him just disagreeing perhaps with the court's view. So in that sense, it's this departmentalism in a weak sense the like way the president doesn't have to agree with the court's view. I don't think it's departmentalism in the strong sense of the word of the president saying, I'm just not gonna obey a contrary Supreme Court decision. And in fact, to his credit, when the Supreme Court ruled against him, uh, Biden did not try to keep the moratorium going. Uh, they didn't even pursue certain avenues of arguments that might have still been available to them. They still dropped the thing. Uh, so it was perhaps weak departmentalism or modest departmentalism, but in my view, not the strong form that some departmentalists, academics advocated. The president is simply saying like, you know, the Supreme Court has made its decision. Now let them enforce it because I'm just going to keep on doing what I want. Unfortunately, you know, Biden didn't go that far, though it does seem clear that he took a measure that he knew was probably illegal for political purposes. Uh, he could give sort of the left wing of the Democratic Party and some others what they wanted. And then when it was got struck down, he could blame the big, bad Supreme Court rather than, you know, having to take the blame himself.
4: So, can I say something about that yeah. case, which actually isn't directly responsive to the departmentalism point. But what I find interesting about that case is that it rested on uh, the decision turned on whether or not the Congress had spoken clearly enough. And I can see I can see that argument. There's also a way to read the statute where where you would say, and and that's the major questions doctrine, basically, right? There's another way to look at that case and say, Actually I think Congress was pretty clear that the secretary can kind of do anything um, to to try to prevent the spread of, of disease over you know over state borders and then that's a whole different question, which is the non-delegation doctrine and does this law actually delegate such a sweeping and unlimited power that that raises problems in some way. And presumably because the non-delegation doctrine at this point, like nobody really knows if it's alive or dead, it's been dead for so long. But then some, a lot of people are saying, now it shouldn't be dead. And you know, what's, what does the future hold? But I kind of, um, I was wondering if that case might be the time at which the Supreme Court maybe went back to the non-delegation doctrine. They did the major questions doctrine instead. And I think that, you know, I, I'm not sure that that was the right answer in, in, in this case or, or the right way to get to that, that answer. But it's interesting.
1: That's If I can engage in shameless self-promotion, I have a whole article devoted to the use of major questions and non-delegation in this case, and also in the uh, um, Title 42 case, which was strikingly similar, where I I make in the NYU Journal of Law and Liberty, but also available on SSRN for free or on my website. And I point out, I think the statute was ambiguous enough that at the very least, the major questions doctrine did apply, Uh, but if not, uh, if you read it the way the government did, then it would essentially give the CDC the power to suppress almost any human activity, because almost any human activity involves movement, uh, has a chance of spreading contagious diseases across state lines, and there's no limitation based on the seriousness of the disease. So in principle, they could say, this can spread the flu, or the common cold, or the shingles, and therefore we can suppress it. Uh, And I think if anything violates non-delegation, something like this does, Uh, and I believe that concern was in the Background of the court's decision, even though they formally based it on major questions, and indeed, I believe if there is a justification for major questions doctrine, it's as a stand-in for non-delegation. Uh, if the court doesn't want to do a robust constitutional non-delegation doctrine, um, perhaps the vindication, perhaps sorry. the
3: vindication of Justice Gorsuch's uh, dissent in the Gundy case about hydraulic forces uh, the doctrines that had not been used uh, coming back uh, and yeah. with uh, in another way doing the same more. Sorry, Liza, go ahead.
4: Oh, I was just going to say, I think Title 42 is slightly different. I think the statute is more clear there, right? I think that's less of a major, that's more likely to be a question of delegation and, and less. And even then, um, I, I think that statute speaks fairly clearly um, and probably the authority is is within, that is one that Congress can delegate. What I worry about is, does that statute have enough in it to provide the necessary checks against abuse because it is such it is such a powerful uh, tool and it's a powerful tool that comes without a whole lot of either substantive or procedural uh, checks. So.
1: So I disagree anyway, I about know. Title 42, but I will refer people to my article where I go into some <laughs> detail. Uh, Darn it, I don't theory. have an article on
3: Title Well, if we're, plug- if we're plugging articles, uh, I have one on uh, Judge Bush's uh, dissental in the Sixth Circuit in the OSHA vaccine mandate uh, case that... Uh, Uh, In the Texas Review of Law and Politics, but uh, which we haven't discussed, but that's okay; We don't we don't need to get to every jot and tittle. Uh, A different sort of question here in terms of we were talking about remedies and judicial review. Who has standing to challenge some of this stuff? I mean, if it's an individual property owner or churchgoer, that's obvious enough. But what about uh, separation of powers, claims that the. You know, the emergency is really over. The governor went over uh, their 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 legislated uh, emergency powers. Um, you know, does a senator or representative have standing? If not, who does? You know, states are, uh, this is a question from James Cusick. States are currently struggling to show standing or harm regarding the student loan forgiveness. So this issue of who can actually get into court to challenge some of this stuff.
1: Yeah. So I've been a long time critic of restrictive standing doctrine. I think it's sort of a, it's a fake doctrine that the court invented and should be gotten rid of. There should, for at least most major exercise of government power, be taxpayers standing or something similar under the current doctrine for some of these things. It's very easy to find someone who has standing like for the eviction moratorium. For example, landlords had standing or organizations of landlords. I think nobody seriously disputed it similarly for the vaccine mandate case that Ilya Shapiro mentioned employers and other people subjects to mandate they had standing. On the other hand, for something like loan forgiveness, it does seem like part of the Biden administration's strategy is to hope that they can evade having judicial review on the theory that nobody will have standing. For instance, you uh, you know, uh, you know, they say, well, what we're doing is giving out a benefit to so the people who get the benefit. They don't have standing or actually their situation is being improved. And the people who don't get it, they're not being harmed relative to the previous status quo. I do think that in the lawsuit filed by the six states at the very least, uh, you can have standing because at least one of them, Missouri has a loan servicer, uh, which services some of these loans. And if so, if those loans are forgiven, the profits of the loan servicer are lower than they would be otherwise. That's a clear economic harm that qualifies for standing. The district court said, well, no, because the state of Missouri doesn't have sufficient total control over what is still a state-owned loan servicer. I hope and expect that that lame reasoning will be overruled on appeal because like, if you actually own the thing, it seems like any financial harm that it suffers is also a harm to the owner, uh, even if the state law says that the funds of the servicer are separate from those of other state agencies and the the officials who run the servicer have Autonomy from other state officials, but you know we'll see what happens. And more generally, I think uh, there, I also want to answer one bit of the question asked about standing by members of Congress under current precedent. Individual members of Congress don't have uh, standing to challenge uh, various exercise the spending power, but in, in, but a House of Congress does have standing. The D.C. Circuit issued that ruling when the uh, Democratic-led House of Representatives sued to challenge the border wall. So if and obviously it's an if, but if the Republicans take control of at least one House of Congress, they could file a similar lawsuit uh, challenging the loan forgiveness uh, program. And unless the Supreme Court reverses that DC Circuit precedent, uh, that precedent would allow the House of Representatives or the Senate uh, to file a lawsuit even though individual members of Congress could not.
3: So watch out if uh, Republicans do uh, take the House as uh... Pollsters seem to expect uh, come January we might uh, have Blag, the bipartisan. Uh, what's it called? Legal advice group. Litigation advisory. Advi- litigation advisory group. Yeah. yeah. Um, Daniel, uh, when you're actually litigating these cases in court, what's your what's been your experience with uh, with standing or or other you know procedural jurisdictional uh, issues? Uh, that law professors might not always uh, think about what kind of practical roadblocks are there, and uh, specifically in the emergency powers context.
0: Yeah, I mean, in in most of the the state um, emergency powers, it's pretty easy. You have a business owner who's who's harmed, um, who who has clear cut standing. Um, we represented uh, landlords in the uh, CDC eviction moratorium cases, so that was pretty. Cut and dry. When it came to comes to the student loan forgiveness case, um, as Ilya mentioned, that one's a lot harder to find um, somebody withstanding. We we currently have a case um, in the Southern District of Indiana. Um, we we have a actually an attorney who works for Pacific Legal Foundation who's who's participating in the Public Interest Loan Forgiveness Plan, um, and Indiana is one of six states that taxes loan forgiveness. And so he is going to, to have a, uh, a tax bill if, uh, if, if that, 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 that goes through. Um, long story short, the, the, the uh, federal government said, fine, we won't forgive yours. And they're changing it to an opt-in. So um, as was mentioned before, they're kind of changing things on the fly to try to kick people
3: out of court. Switching gears from practical litigation nuts and bolts to broader philosophical issues, uh, an anonymous uh, viewer uh, writes that in, in today's Wall Street Journal, Gerard Baker wrote, Across the West, we are led by too many inferior people who shouldn't be left in charge of a Lego set, let alone the entire edifice of national government. Unquote. To what extent is the emergency powers a legal problem to be solved as opposed to a warning indicator letting us know that we're consistently electing leaders who are not faithfully executing the laws?
4: I love it, but it's an expensive warning indicator. <laughs> I'd rather, you know, I'd rather find out in other ways, I guess. I mean, sure, the emergency powers are dangerous because they're prone to abuse, and anybody who actually takes up the invitation and abuses them, um, I don't know. I shouldn't say this. I I, I think that um, given the dysfunction that we have in Congress right now, it is understandable that uh, presidents, speaking generally are falling back on executive power to govern. Despite what Ilya said about the fact that they're, Ilya Soman, Soman about the fact that their, you know, Congress has passed some laws recently Sure, but I think you know Congress has, has, has passed a handful of laws. If you look at the actual rates of legislation that Congress is passing today, compared to 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, Congress is asleep at the wheel. And again and again, Congress fails to enact the policies that majorities of Americans consistently support. Congress is dysfunctional. I don't, does anybody want to fight me on that? Congress is dysfunctional. And so I get it. I get why presidents are taking advantage of the leeway they have been given by Congress, including through these emergency powers, to try to get stuff done. So does this mean they are unfit to be leaders? I'm not willing to go that far. But it does mean that we're in trouble if we don't do some very serious rethinking about the way that Congress has delegated powers, particularly with respect to emergency powers and what we can do about that going forward. So I think I think, you know, I want to sort of step back a little from where I was going with that. I don't think it's true that any president who uses emergency powers to get stuff done out of frustration with with Congress is unfit to lead by definition. I do think they have abused the powers that Congress gave them. And I think we have to make it a lot harder for presidents to do that.
1: Uh, Just a a brief thought on that. I think you could, the real problem or a real problem here is not that the current class of politicians are particularly unfit, Uh, though in a few cases such as Trump, you could say that they go beyond the bounds of the normal, quote unquote, in terms of the awful things they're willing to do. But part of what we're seeing here is that political leadership by its nature attracts the kind of person who is power hungry and it was willing to abuse the power to gain various kinds of political and ideological ends. So while you can argue Trump in some ways is outside of the normal Joe Biden Biden, you know, for example, seems like he's as normal as they come in terms of career politicians. It's hard to argue that he's sort of a weird or strange personality, but yet he's still doing this kind of stuff. I think it's because partly because of these are the kind of people that are attracted by these careers, generally speaking, and partly because of the incentives uh, of the office. Uh, and Uh, Yes, sometimes it is because Congress is doing a bad job, uh, but I think to the extent that Congress is doing a bad job, it's not because it's passing too little legislation. Uh, I think if you look at the scale of the legislation as opposed to just the sheer number of laws, the scale is enormous. What they've done even just during the last couple of years or even during the years of Trump or Obama, Uh, it's that the federal government controls so many aspects of our lives that whether it's Congress or whether it's the president, them trying to control all of that, uh, they will likely do a bad job. Uh and indeed even perfectly normal, ordinary politicians would tend to do a bad job, never mind the occasional, you know, Donald Trump that can be even worse than that. Uh, so uh, ideally, we should have a government that does uh, fewer things well rather than the current attempt to do many things badly.
4: So, literally, um. until this moment, y'all didn't realize that Ilya and I are on different sides of the ideological spectrum.
1: So, Liza <laughs> and I agree on many things, including many, many things, things involving emergency powers, but we, there are some things
3: we differ. Um, well, you know, Biden might be an ordinary Joe, but uh, uh seems Older and having lost a few miles uh, off his fastball that wasn't all, all that fast to begin with either. Um, uh, I want to, before we conclude, uh, I, I do want to uh, uh, get to one another area of law that we haven't yet touched on, but is especially important now as we're two weeks away from the midterms, and that's emergency powers regarding election regulation, whether with uh, COVID uh, and the, the kind of writing, changing rules on the fly, leading to uh, uh, distrust uh, in the Confidence of voters of the public in our electoral institutions, claims of uh, suppression on one side, fraud on the other. Um, how do we, you know, deal with uh, emergency powers uh, over elections? Potentially, Devin Watkins asks: uh, uh, Could the independent state legislature doctrine that's at issue in the case of Moore versus Harper before the Supreme Court this term uh, have some uh, uh, gain some clarity on on that issue? Anybody want to talk about election law, emergency powers over election law?
1: So I guess not. So fools rush in where wise men fear to tread. So I can't do justice to the topic in like the one minute, but I will merely say that uh, obviously there there does need to be oversight in this area. But I would say here, actually, the story during COVID is much more of a success story than in other areas in that we did have various emergencies that were measures that were taken for the most part. However, they didn't restrict anyone's liberty to any significant degree. They did not cause any more voter fraud than would normally occur, despite Republicans, mostly bogus attempts to claim otherwise. And many, not all, but many of the measures were actually reasonably understandable given the situation, such as, you know, more access to mail in ballots uh, and the like, so that people wouldn't be in crowded facilities. So I, I'm not going to claim every measure was right or that, you know, there aren't some legal issues in the independent state legislature doctrine. That could be a whole uh, webinar of its own. But it seems to me that here, uh, the problem is not that horrible things were done, although maybe some was were made the problem is that people like Donald Trump but also in some cases people on the left with respect to voter suppression so-called made irresponsible claims about what happened and uh sadly many of the much of the political base of those people uh believed those claims rather than you know seeing that the claims were almost entirely without Merit as actually courts repeatedly ruled in the case of Trump's claims and also in the case of here you know, there wasn't even a court case but also for instance um uh, uh miss abrams claims about the 2018 georgia election where she falsely claimed that you know she didn't really lose even though it's pretty clear that she did
3: all right. Uh, I want to get in one more issue, and this is a, a chance for Daniel to jump back in. Uh, I'm sure uh, one of his frustrations is that some of these cases uh, eventually courts sit on them for a long time and then moot them because uh, the issue has disappeared. The the emergency order lockdown restriction has has gone away. Is a question from Warren Norred that raises this in the context of the Texas Alcohol Commission's irrational rules, but of course this comes up in a whole host of areas where again the courts don't rule and then and then. And uh, you know the the thing being sued over has been has sunset or or gets rescinded uh, and the courts mooted out. Uh, how, how do we deal with, with those kinds of issues?
0: Yeah, I, we've we saw that a lot in in a lot of PLS cases where the courts just sat on their hands and then eventually said that that this is over and we don't have to deal with it. I mean, I think that that the legislature should instruct courts that that they should look at these issues that they should uh, provide expedited <laughs> review. And, and again, uh, as we mentioned before, uh, set the standard by which they should uh, judge these, these emergency orders to make sure that they're not arbitrary. Um, I think that would send a strong signal to the courts that they shouldn't just sit on their hands and wait for the emergency to be over.
3: All right. I think we have to end it there. Just a few minutes after the hour. I want to thank uh, Liza Goitin, Ilya Soman, and Daniel Dew for their comments. Um, uh, thanks to uh, the Federal Society and the Separation of Powers uh, Practice Group for allowing me to host uh, this event. Uh, thanks to all of you for attending. Um, and this will be posted uh, online uh, quite soon. FedSoc is is good about that. Um, And with that, uh, Jack, unless we have uh, anything else, I think we're adjourned.
2: I think that does it. Thank you very much, Ilya. And I'll echo your thanks for the rest of our speakers as well. And thank you to our audience for tuning in to today's event. You can check out our website, fedsoc.org, or follow us on all the major social media platforms at Fedsoc to stay up to date. With that, we are adjourned. Thank you.
1: Thank you for listening to this episode of Teleform, a podcast
0: of the Federalist Society's Practice Groups. For more information about the Federalist Society, the practice groups, and to become a Federal Society member, please visit our website at fedsoc.org.